This is Asia Insight. Asia policy in a pod. Welcome to Asia Insight, the podcast of the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Doug Strube, director of the Center for Innovation, Trade, and Strategy. In this episode, we're joined by NBR counselor Charles Bustani, a former six-term congressman and an expert on foreign policy and U.S. trade policy. Congressman Bustani will be serving as guest host for this episode and will lead a discussion on APEC 2023 with Ambassador Robert Holliman and Shihoko Goto of the Wilson Center. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Heinrich Foundation. NBR would like to thank the Heinrich Foundation for their support of our year-long project examining APEC 2023. Over to you, Charles. Welcome, everyone, to this NBR podcast. It's a pleasure to join you today. My name is Charles Bustani, and I will be serving as moderator, a former member of Congress, and also a counselor at NBR. We are very fortunate to have two outstanding experts joining us in this podcast. Shihoko Goto is the Director for Geoeconomics and Indo-Pacific Enterprise and Deputy Director for the Asia Program at the Wilson Center. She specializes in trade relations and economic issues across the Indo-Pacific, as well as uh, political developments in Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, she was a financial journalist covering the international political economy with a focus on Asian markets, where she explored extensively policies impacting the global financial system as well as international trade. Shihoko, welcome. We also have an outstanding expert, uh, a good friend of mine, Ambassador Robert Holloman, who is president and CEO of Kroll Maring International and a member of the Board of Advisors at the National Bureau of Asian Research. Previously, Ambassador Holloman served as Deputy United States Trade Representative from 2014 to 2017, where he had a very broad portfolio. He was responsible for U.S. trade and investment relations in Asia, including APEC uh, and China and India. But he also had a number of sectoral uh, responsibilities, uh, including digital economy and digital trade, global trade policy in the areas of services, investment and intellectual property and innovation. And prior to his time at USTR, Ambassador Holloman was president and CEO of BSA, the Software Alliance, from 1990 to 2013. Welcome, Robert. I'm so glad to see both of you. This is going to be a, a fun discussion. We're going to focus today on APEC 23, because it's a really important forum coming up this year, especially given that the United States is hosting it. So we're going to be looking at a number of the priorities, obviously, that the U.S. has and the possibilities that they may be able to achieve. The U.S. theme for this uh, in 2023 is creating a resilient and sustainable future for all. And there are three organizing principles, interconnected, innovative, and inclusive. Sounds grand and wide open for uh, all kinds of possibilities. But I want to add that the United States uh, last had the opportunity of hosting APEC in 2011. And at that time, uh, the U.S. announced TPP negotiations. So a lot has happened since then. Uh, if you consider that Japan led the effort to basically finalize the CPTPP, after the U.S. pulled out of TPP. Uh, now the U.K. is looking to exceed to that, as well as China, Taiwan, and possibly others. Of course, we now know that RCEP is in place. It's a major trade agreement in the Indo-Pacific, initiated by the Southeast Asian countries. Of course, China is a big part of it, as well as Japan, South Korea, and others. 
And there are a number of a number of things going on in the digital economy world, digital trade world, which um, that seems to be very active. And then lastly, the U.S. is trying to play catch up with the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum or IPEF. The U.S. has identified a number of trade related priorities for APEC in the host year, specifically digital trade and digital connectivity, as well as supply chain resiliency and climate change. So let me just throw this broad question out to begin. In what areas do you think the U.S. can make tangible progress in its host year? And where do you see things being particularly challenging? Shahoko, you want to take that first? Yeah. So a lot has changed since the United States was actually the host country of, of APEC. And there's a lot of expectations for the United States to really bring this very disparate uh, group of countries together. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of skepticism as well. And that skepticism really comes from mixed messages that's coming out from Washington. So on the one hand, the United States is saying, yes, we want to work on connectivity and, and working together, and it wants to have a multilateral effort. But at the same time, it also appears to many outside of Washington that it still wants to look for a U.S.-led order um, on the economic front that is also matching that of uh, security leadership that it has. Now, on the security front, the United States has really been successful in bringing countries together to push back against authoritarian rule, not just in Asia, but also in Europe as well, against China as well as Russia. That kind of clarity, is, unfortunately, is lacking on the economic front. Now, the expectation or the hope, I should say, is that APEC provides this forum for the United States to really step up to the plate, to bring its economic leadership and the economic agenda that would actually match the military leadership that it has actually provided to date. But if we actually open the box and see what the United States is offering, there seems to be a little bit of slim pickings. Yes, the United States has come up with IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and I do think that the four issues that IPEF lays out is something that is very much forward-looking, and it is, and they are issues that other countries can actually um, rally around. That is to say, uh, trade facilitation in particular, ensuring um, supply chain resiliency, sustainability and decarbonization, and dealing with corruption and focusing on good governance. These are issues that most of the APEC member countries can actually agree on. But at the same time, there's a lot of pushback, especially from Southeast Asian countries saying, oh, it's a trade deal. Where is the market access? What are we getting out of this? Why should we sign on to it? I do think what Washington is saying and saying that trade is taking on a different light, that it isn't simply about market access. And we do have to focus on economic priorities and transparency and bringing like-minded countries together under the four pillars that IPEF has outlined. That is something that can um, and should um, be pushed forward at the APEC meetings uh, that are coming forward. 
But at the same time, the United States does need to recognize that what the Indo-Pacific region in particular is looking for is not just about adhering to the rule of law, but it does actually need greater access to U.S. markets, which are lucrative. It does need to um, have greater um, development assistance. It needs support on infrastructure development and the like. And the United States actually needs to put a, a great deal of money as well as effort um, into achieving some of these goals. So let me leave it at that for now. Thanks. Robert, why don't you take it from there? What's your perspective on this, on the challenges the U.S. may face with this APEC meeting? You know, Shahoko's laid out the broad possibilities, but there's some serious challenges, too. Well, I want to start by congratulating the Biden-Harris administration for agreeing that the U.S. would host APEC this year. There was a, a, a gap in the economies uh, that are, were hosting, and this year was a gap that uh, Vice President Harris spoke out in Asia, actually in a visit to Singapore, saying that the U.S. would step in and be willing to host. And I think that is no small feat in large part because this is taking 21 economies uh, coming up with a year's worth of work, uh, multiple work streams that range from traditional trade to cybersecurity to health to economic opportunity. And so it's a big agenda. At the same time, I think we have to recognize that APEC as a platform is an important platform, but it's not sufficient to accomplish everything that the United States would wish to accomplish in the Asia-Pacific related to trade uh, or other issues more broadly. Certainly it is challenged as an organization at this point by the fact that Russia is one of the members of APEC. That, because of the conflict in Ukraine, poses a whole series of challenges for the organization, as it does in other forums uh, where the world is sort of grappling with uh, the conflict that's underway. Certainly, China is a major player in APEC. The United States has welcomed China as a participant in APEC among the other economies, but there are some differences that exist. So we think it is, and I think it is an important platform for the United States, but it's not sufficient to accomplish everything that the United States would like to do. So what I'm optimistic that the Biden-Harris administration is doing is they're taking multiple tools that are in the tool chest and trying to say how do they assemble those to provide a more coherent leadership opportunity in the Asia-Pacific. And there, I think, you know, a lot of work remains to be done, but we see the pieces coming into play. We see the APEC post year this year. We see the Indo-Pacific economic framework uh, as one of the tools in that tool chest. We see work that's happening in other forums, including the G7, G20, that fit into this as well. What happens through all of this activity? I think it's too early to tell. Trade in particular is a very challenged topic in the U.S. for domestic reasons, but I think it's important for the U.S. to be showing that we're a Pacific nation, showing that we have ambitions to be working with um, our allies. And it's particularly important since the U.S. has opted out of some of the major trade agreements like the TPP or the CPTPP. Um, I don't see any imminent 
likelihood that the U.S. will be going back into those. So we need to have other venues, other avenues in which we engage. APEC is an important one for the U.S. this year, uh, but it is important particularly when combined with some of the other initiatives. How important is it, Robert, for the U.S. to have deliverables coming out of this, more, you know, more specific deliverables as opposed to, you know, demonstrating leadership on the, on the, on the big stage of APEC, which is important. It shows our interest is there. Our engagement is there. But really in judging success, is it really important to have deliverables coming out of this? Well, most APEC, um, annual meetings, uh, leaders meetings have a series of statements around the alignment of the leaders on key topics. I think those statements are important. Uh, they've been challenged in some recent years where we were unable to get those statements, but I think that, that we will get them for this year. But then the question is, do the statements support any major initiatives of the host economy? And there, I really think we don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's just too early to tell. Certainly, the U.S. will try to use APEC as a rallying cry around the Indo-Pacific economic framework. On the other hand, not all of the countries who are in the Indo-Pacific framework are members of APEC. So APEC isn't a precise fit. The U.S. has a similar agreement to, to IPEF in the Americas. Some of the countries in some of the economies in APEC are in the Americas initiative. So I think this is really, it, it is seeing elements of how those pieces can come together you know, what I hope we get away is a sense this year that there are some common elements that bind us together. I think climate is probably a very strong area where, because the U.S. Uh, passed the Inflation Reduction Act, we're seeing some major investments at, at home. I think you could see the U.S. carrying some of that strength into what the U.S. is trying to do on climate in APAC, IPEF, and elsewhere. I think some, some of the digital issues are a bit more challenged because of some of the um, localization practices that are being put in place among some of the APEC economies. I think it's, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, I'm not expecting major announcements or major breakthroughs in the U.S. host year for APEC, but I think we should see that they're making progress towards some of the longer-term objectives for the U.S. Right. Shahoka, what do you think about that um, in terms of deliverables? I mean, obviously, IPEF has a number of pillars. Some of these may be more promising and fruitful in terms of getting to some sort of statement or agreement that could be seen as a deliverable. Others, not so much. Uh, what's your view? Right. Well, because APEC is such, it represents such a diverse um, grouping of economies, including economies that are actually not countries, right? So we have the inclusion, for instance, of Taiwan, um, as well as Hong Kong. And here's the United States bringing together these, as China would see it, parts of the Chinese regions together with Russia. And so when we talk about deliverables, actually having all of these disparate groups in one forum is, is a deliverable unto itself, given how, how much political tension there is. But um, on the Taiwan issue in particular, um, we've seen Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen uh, visiting the United States. But there is going to be this question of how does the United States um, deal with the leadership uh, of Taiwan and how can it be included? And so that 
in itself will be a gauge of the U.S. relations with China and to what extent Washington is prepared to push back against some of the agenda and the definition of what China is, um, according to, to Beijing. Um, in terms of actual deliverables, yes, I, I do agree that the basic commonality is going to be on climate. Uh, but I also do think that there is potential to focus on good practices in investing in infrastructure. And so, yes, we, we talk about some of the coercive examples of Chinese um, lending practices. But at the same time, when it comes to environmental um, lending, some of the Chinese projects actually have high standards. And so there is this opportunity to really focus on how do we, what do we mean by investing in infrastructure and what kind of opportunities can there be? And remember, although the United States is the host country, there are going to be a lot of sideline meetings, like any international grouping of leaders. And so that is going to be somewhere that um, we're going to focus a great deal on. And some of the deliverables may come from the sidelines. Yeah, that's interesting that the, uh, the sideline meetings might be the most fruitful venues in terms of getting some things that the, the administration can come back and, and, um, and brag about. On digital trade, Robert, you mentioned, you know, it's going to be difficult to, to find agreement in a number of these areas, but there are some agreements out there. Um, you know, the DEPA is out there. There's a, a, an agreement with, between Singapore and Australia. Of course, the U.S. has one with Japan now. Do you see any pathway to seeing some kind of uh, collaboration there and expansion around digital trade? I think this modular approach, I think it's within DEPA, is an interesting approach because it does account for changes in technology, changes in standards, and so forth. Any possibilities there? It's a great question. I think that the digital economy partnership agreement with Chile, Singapore, and New Zealand is uh, an interesting model. I, I suspect that many of the aspects of that are going to be mirrored in what the U.S. is putting on the table in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Agreement on digital. We haven't seen the text yet, but I think the concept is that it's much of what's in the DEPA agreement but with other elements added. And I think that was really large part a decision by the United States to ensure that there was a breadth of support domestically in the U.S. for our discussions. I think there were some who believed if they were only digital discussions or if the U.S. just joined the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement, that that would sort of exclude other areas, whether it was environment or worker rights or other economic issues that are important. So the U.S. made the decision that rather than doing one pillar, that they would have digital provisions in the trade pillar of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and there would also be digital provisions in one of the key Commerce Department-led frameworks. So I think we're going to see a lot of the discussion in that context. Now, what does it mean for APEC? I think here we're going to see more targeted approaches to digital trade. I think the expansiveness of whether it was the DEPA or the IPATH, it's unlikely to see that in the context of APEC, again, because of some of the entrenched views of some of the economies. 
but I think you'll see elements of this being discussed. Um, I was at earlier back meetings this, this year. We had some panels about cloud computing and best principles for cloud first principles. I'm excited and been excited about cloud computing for a long time because it really brings down the cost of computing infrastructure so that it can be used by large corporations, small corporations, startups. And I think we see cloud infrastructure growing around the world. So I think things like that can be discussed as a foundation of the digital economy. Um, I think there are other elements that are harder, but where also APEC has been the incubator. For example, APEC created the APEC cross-border privacy rules, which was a framework to allow raising standards for privacy protection among the APEC economies, but also allowing data with the appropriate protections to be transferred across borders. Well, the U.S. and a number of the APEC economies had decided it was such a good thing in APEC that we actually needed to lift it out of APEC. And the U.S., Japan, other countries are creating the global cross-border privacy rules, where they're basically saying, let's not limit this to the APEC economies, but let's make this system of data transfers a principle that other countries can join, even if they're not in APEC. So it's a good example where APEC can be an incubator. So it, it's it's a mix of various elements. Uh, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think the U.S. is wisely saying we don't need to do this just in one place, but let's multiply our options by participating in multiple venues. Let's talk for a minute about China and Russia uh, being part of this. It, it really is truly remarkable that this this group of countries will be coming together, but then you have other countries in the region, predominantly the Southeast Asian countries, which really don't want to take sides in all of this, uh, and they're they're very cautious about jumping into something that will be construed by one side or the other as taking sides. Relations between the U.S. and China are not good. Do you expect some of that dynamic to play out at APEC, or do you think? You know, the Chinese will come sort of in the spirit of let's figure out what we can agree to economically, or will they, will they take this position of quickly labeling everything the U.S. tries to do as containment and, you know, the, the attempt to, to hold China back? What, what do you think about that? I know it's, it's a sticky question and we're speculating in some respects, even trying to talk about it, but, but we do know that a number of countries in the region really reluctant to take sides. Well, I'll I'll start on that. I look I think the I think the good news is that countries really don't have to take sides. China is in APEC, Russia is in APEC. Um really the complication in APEC at the moment is is Russia. But even there, there have been statements last year Thailand was the host of APEC and there was an APEC leader statement. There were some disagreements about how to talk about Ukraine, but the, the economies, to use the APEC term, managed to come together and find general consensus. So I think the U.S. is very much of the belief um, that we'll be able to do the same thing this year. Um, and that includes certainly China as the second largest economy in the world after the United States. But it also includes the appropriate participation by Russia as part of this on some things where there can be agreement. I mean, it's an economic forum and a trade forum. It's not 
a security forum. I mean, that doesn't mean that the economies are unaware of what's happening elsewhere. And certainly the U.S. will continue to vigorously raise what's happening in Ukraine and the causes of that. But I think we see a precedent where the U.S. can move beyond. Um, it's also interesting that India is not part of the APEC forum, but they are part of the IPEF. And the IPEF, neither China nor um, Russia are there. So, again, this is sort of a way in which the U.S. has recognized that um, one forum isn't the solution for all of the trade or economic issues that the U.S. is dealing with. And so is sort of creating new vehicles, new mechanisms to do that in the same way that the U.S. is doing it for the for the Americans. And they're doing that for the Americans because there are only a handful of economies in the Americas who are actually part of APEC. So it's sort of looking for the ways to take the right issues there. That's where I think you'll see issues around um, climate uh, take a, a big role. And I hope we see issues around health take a big role. I mean, that's certainly one of the things that we're going to discuss in the context of the APEC host year. There's a health working group. Uh, one of the nice things about APEC is it's not just trade ministers or finance ministers, but they bring a lot of people together. There's an energy ministerial that's going to happen as well for the first time that Secretary Granholm is going to lead. And so it really brings a chance that you can bring a lot of portions to people to the table, ministries to the table. And I think that generally tends to yield more progress, even if it's not progress on every single element of those issues. Usually there's a basis to find common ground. And I think that's what the U.S. is hoping to do with this is the APEC host here for the U.S. Hoka, on the geopolitical overtones of this, um, what are your views? So, yes. So this is the Economic Cooperation Forum. So economics and trade should be at the forefront. Uh, but what's interesting um, in recent, over the past year or recent months, actually, um, is China is really trying to redefine itself on the global stage. And it's become, it wants to be seen much more in acting as a global broker for peace. And we saw that in the Saudi-Iran deal. And we're seeing that as China tries to step up to act as a conduit for peace um, with uh, with Russia and Ukraine as well. So in in answer to your question, Congressman, initially about is this going to be a forum for a division, I actually think that China would want to step up to the plate and be seen much more as a global statesman. Uh, but that's not necessarily to say that um, it's going to agree with the agenda that the United States is going to push forward far from it. What we may see is much more of an alternative vision and kind of poking holes in some of the um, agendas that the United States is bringing forward. So, of course, we see China as a champion or China wants to position itself as, as the champion of the global south. And so some of the issues of the global south is going to be about uh, debt relief, of course. Um, and also, we also have to remember that um, during the global financial meltdown of 2007-2008, it was China that was actually played a tremendous role in ensuring that uh, there was financial stability. And so we will see the issue being addressed about the financial systems as much as about the trade regime as well. But 
are the governments actually going to bite, right? Are they actually going to join that bandwagon as China seeks to reposition itself as this global statesman? That's going to be very difficult. We see the track record of China and the the unfair lending practices that it has. Um, it's going to come under a great deal of criticism um, on, on all fronts. Uh, but at the same time, there is going to be a lot of concern about the United States as well. I do want to point out that one of the biggest challenges facing the United States as APEC leader is going to be that there is a lot of concern worldwide about the risks that the United States itself poses. And they come in a number of forms. One, of course, is the political realm. Um, most, I, I just came back from Taiwan last week, and one of the biggest questions that the Taiwanese have is about um, the stability of the U.S. political system and what's going to happen to U.S. commitments if and when a new administration takes over. So right now we're talking about IPEF, but is IPEF going to go the way of TPP so that when there is a new administration, is the United States going to rip that up? and move on and develop a new agreement and what happens then. Uh, There's also a lot of concern about um, the consequences of the Inflation Reduction Act in the form of protectionism in the industrial policy that the United States is moving forward with. So these are some of the issues that the member uh, economies of, of APEC will be raising. Again, this is not going to be something that any country or countries are going to be able to agree upon, but that certainly will be a, a, a challenge that the United States will face as they try to as it tries to bring countries together. Yeah, Shihoko, I'm glad you raised that, that point about uncertainty about U.S. politics and the political system and the partisan divisions because I've heard this too. There's concerns about uh, coming, whether it's from Europe or Asia. What's the future? Will the United States, in fact, be rel- a reliable partner? And it raises the question about, you know, all these initiatives. So I think one of the big challenges for the United States is to say, regardless of who who's in office, you know, the U.S. will be engaged in Asia. And, of course, we send conflicting signals uh, in that regard. So it'll be very interesting to see how the administration handles that, that, that undertone that could arise. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Chinese try to try to use that to create division at a time when they're reasserting their diplomatic push coming off the agreement they achieved between the Saudis and the Iranians, uh, Xi's visit to you know Russia, and, and of course looking for other diplomatic opportunities. It will be interesting. The other concern, you mentioned earlier, uh, Shoko, envir- both of you mentioned the environmental issues and how we might find consensus there. Labor is always a sticky one, and I know it's a priority for the administration. And Within IPEF, I'm, I'm sure they're going to, they will be pushing this, but getting to labor standards is really hard unless it's enforceable. And that's been right at the crux of so many problems we've had with trade agreements. What do you think the administration will do to try to move the needle on the labor front? Robert, you want to take that first? Sure. I, th- I think the U.S. will use things like the IPEF as the mechanism for trying to address some of the labor issues. I think the U.S. will also look at some of the existing free trade agreements that the U.S. has to see how they can try to get them to emulate what was added in the um, U.S.-Mexico-Canada 
uh, free trade agreement, uh, USMCA, around a early warning signal if labor rights are being violated. So I see that happening in things like the IPEF. I think the U.S. will talk about the importance of um, workers being able to organize in the context of APEC, but I don't think we're going to see anything likely of great breadth there just because of the diversity of the economies. And also tends to, APEC tends to um, not get into as many thorny issues. They look for sort of ways in which it's, it's uh, more useful to collaborate. Um, I will note on the question of China and APEC, I was in China in 2014 when they were the APEC host economy. They put a lot of attention into trying to make it a successful year. And while there may be divergences on some issues and certainly maybe in some areas around security, my expectation and I think U.S. expectation is that they will want the APEC host year to be successful um, this year and in future years because it is a very important venue for them as a country. Uh, what the U.S. needs to do is essentially what we were doing when China last hosted APEC, which is we were negotiating TPP at that time, which is I'm not suggesting we're going to negotiate TPP at that time, but what we showed is we could be negotiating with a group of countries, even on the margins of larger meetings where not all of the APEC economies were included. And so I think we should see the same thing, I hope, this year, which is the U.S. can continue to negotiate the IPEF agreement, even while it's hosting the APEC, where not all of the APEC economies are in the IPEF. There are good convening opportunities for things like environment, where we see it coming up in APEC and in IPEF and in other forums. They may be places where you can touch many of the same issues with many of the same parties and make progress. And there are going to be others like labor, for example, where they're less likely to see a lot of attention or movement in APEC, but where we may be able to see more in the context of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. So the situation we're in this year, uh, if you call it a situation, the world we're in is not really dramatically different from where it's been for the U.S. in the past, which is how do you use multiple frameworks to accomplish differing objectives? Sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they don't. Stokel? Yeah, so nearly half of the countries that make, economies that make up APEC are actually not part of IPEF. So trying to move forward or really focusing on the the four pillars that are outlined by IPEF is probably not going to be a a realistic approach. So the question really is, what is the low-hanging fruit um, that that can actually be the common denominator for all of these um, very diverse economies? And my hope is that they might actually take a more creative approach. So, uh, Congressman, you, you talked about labor rights. I would say that one of the labor issues is not just about rights, but workforce development. And so that is about um, taking a new approach to infrastructure. It's not just about roads and bridges that China and Japan and all these other countries are really moving forward with. But we really also want to invest in human capital, human capital about um, you know, education, re-education, focusing on 
beyond um, traditional um, labor and, and focusing also on meeting the digital economy needs and training in IT skills in the service sector. And like these could be fairly non-controversial if put right, and it would be relatively easier to reach a consensus. So I, I hope that there, there can be an opportunity to really think about new ways of, of addressing the infrastructure issue. There's certainly a major need in the Indo-Pacific, uh, whether it's ports uh, and other types of infrastructure. And it's certainly going to take a lot of money, which means no, no one country can take on the burden. And coming up with cooperative agreements with certain standards around lending in these projects could be a fruitful way to go, depending on um, you know how it's approached. That's, that's quite interesting. And I like your idea about workforce development. It's a better way, a more positive way to speak about these issues uh, in many respects, uh, a more inclusive way to do it. Well, we're uh, we're getting down to the end here. I just want to open the, the door for either of you say whatever you want to say that we haven't covered. Uh, it's such an interesting topic. There's so much to discuss. Robert, why don't you take the first shot at that one? Well, two things I'll say that I think uh, for APEC year are things where we'll see continued progress and success. One is APEC has had a long history of talking about women's economic empowerment very successfully through different administrations in the U.S. and really going to focus on women in the workplace, women's entrepreneurship. I think we're going to see that's a U.S. priority for this year, and that's an area where we've seen consistent agreement and movement in sort of lifting up in the context of APEC the important role of women, the important role of women um, across the economies, and how APEC can be a platform for that type of economic cooperation. There's also a big focus on small and medium enterprises, particularly for the APEC economies, many of which are heavily, heavily driven by SMEs. Certainly we are in the United States, but many of the APEC economies are overwhelmingly SMEs, small and medium enterprises. And so lifting that up as part of APEC is something that the U.S. wants to do and where we've seen consistent attention. So I think that, you know, we can talk about the broad range of issues, but I also think it's important that we really focus on where APEC has continued year after year to get traction, where the U.S. continues to see where, quite frankly, there aren't differences of opinions between some of the economies that we've talked about, about kind of moving this forward. And then you see elements of those being brought into some of the trade agreements, whether it's the IPATH or other agreements. Certainly, there were provisions in the TPP about that. So, you know, this is good. And I think as even as we talk about the challenges, it's really important to remember the successes that we've had. We've seen tariffs have been coming down among the APEC economies since APEC was created. We've seen tariffs on things like environmental goods, environmentally friendly products coming down. So there's a lot here. And at a time where there is our political challenges at home and abroad, a time where trade is a very complicated issue, to say the least, in the United States, I never want us to lose sight of the fact that we still can see consistent progress on a lot of issues that are helping our people and certainly helping the United States. And so um, I think that's the way we should think about this year. And I'm positive that when we end this year, we'll look back on this and say progress was made. It may not be everything that everybody wants, 
but I'm confident that this is going to end up being a positive year for the U.S. in particular as a host of APAC. So come over to you. Yeah, so here in Washington, we tend to focus a great deal in the foreign policy sphere about great power competition. And it's one of the um, rare topics that there is unity on Capitol Hill to see China as a great threat. Um, that may or may not be, but APEC is certainly not the forum to talk about great power competition. It really is about focusing on unity and common interests and common concerns amongst these countries. And so I would say that the success of the United States as host nation would be to be able to focus on the positive and to be able to bring these countries together. And and if that means there's a watered down uh, statement come out, so be it. Because the the real achievement will be to say that the United States can be this force unifier and bring countries to the table and focus um, and agree uh, to a common agenda that moves forward. Great. Well, I'm glad we ended on a positive note and uh, we'll all be hopeful that is the case going forward. I am guardedly optimistic as well. I think there is um, there's a there's a pathway and. Hopefully we'll see some progress uh, in a number of areas that we can uh, we can look back upon and be proud of. And I know having interacted with both of you before, we're all hopeful that something will happen in trade eventually, but it may may be a little while longer. But I do know this. Congress is getting very interested in it. Both parties and both uh, the House and Senate. I would not be surprised to see a move uh, in the near future on trade promotion authority on the part of Congress, uh, to reassert its, uh, its, its prerogatives, its constitutional authorities. Uh, so maybe for a future, future discussion, we can talk about that. But meanwhile, uh, I share your optimism and look forward to seeing the results. And thank you both for taking time to be a part of this NBR podcast. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.